Now, I have leaned heavily on the preaching team members, men and women that I know in my life who, who are married, um, and, and certainly commentaries and preachers from those who have walked that road. Uh, one of those is a man, his name is Pastor Bruce Zachary. I got a lot of my outline from him, and he talked about this quote, this statistic that's often sort of misunderstood or, or, or uh, misused, that, that over 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And then you often hear that the same is true in Christian marriages, that 50% of, of all Christian marriages end in divorce as well. Now, those statistics are flawed for a lot of reasons, but one of those being that just because you check a box on a survey and say that you're of the Christian wing doesn't really mean a lot. And, and what, when, you, when you get in further, when you dive in deeper, studies have shown that, that when both spouses are committed to their relationship with the Lord, I mean, they're walking with him, they're attending church regular, in the word, they're praying. Not that those things make you a Christian, but often they're manifestations of a real walk with the Lord. Studies have actually shown that, that the divorce rate plummets to under 15%. Under 15%, both, couple, both spouses are, are, are genuinely walking with the Lord, and the satisfaction rates are over 91%. Now, I have no idea how you procure that. How you, <laughs> again, this is a realm that I'm not familiar with. And, and we don't want to trust in statistics too heavily. Um, but can you imagine putting that on the cover of U.S. Weekly? Like, you want to keep your marriage steamy? Try Jesus, right? Like, have a Bible study. That would not fly well. And the tabloids. But what this supports is, is what we know of the God in Scripture. That he is the only rock that anything of value can be founded on, including marriage. And, and if both spouses place their hope in him... Marriages, and, and we know that marriage is difficult, and there's no easy, easy one, two, three through that. But if you want to see a marriage not just last, but to thrive, it must be founded on a hope in something bigger than your marriage. But you may ask, how do I do this? My marriage feels like it's anything but thriving. And what about, and I know there are those in our body that are in this situation, what if my spouse isn't a believer or isn't walking with the Lord? How much more infinitely difficult to have a godly relationship when one of us does not walk with God. And we want to understand, even in, especially in those situations, how do we honor God? How do we glorify God in our marriages? And this is exactly what Peter addresses in his passage today. Chapter 3, we'll have the verses on the screen. The context here, to back up for a second. This isn't your home, Peter. This is the context of the book of Peter. This isn't your home, so don't live like it. Okay? He, ca he calls us, just like these little dudes, we are aliens and strangers in this world. That we are encountering a world that's, that's different from our own. And we're not supposed to live like the world lives. Not to get comfortable here and act like those who do belong here. And, and we are called, the theme of our book is to stand firm in His grace. And to look at the eternal perspective that He affords us in Scripture. And that even when we walk through hard things, we're to place our hope in, in the Lord. And to trust him, submit, to put ourselves under his authority, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And the, and the immediate context in the book, we're looking at three things. First of all, as citizens, he says that we're submit to, through the authorities, even when we don't like that government. Even when we disagree with it, or even if that government is us. And then we saw last week that slaves were called to submit to their masters, even if that master is harsh with them, that treats them unfairly, that might even uh, physically abuse them. And, and then we, we look to, the, to spouses, and today we're going to see how we can honor God by submitting to our spouses, even when you don't feel 
like their submission material. So number one, we want to look at respect. Wives are to submit to their husband's leadership. Verse 1, Peter says, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. Now, we've got to understand who Peter's writing to. He's writing to a group of people. This is the New Age. And for the first time in the ancient world, men and women are coming together as equals in Christ. First time, he says, remember Paul said, he said, now there is no slave nor free. There is no Jew nor Gentile. There is no male or female. All are one in Christ. Liberty in the marriage context, in the midst of a male-dominated world, even more so than today. And so this newfound freedom in marriage just creates all these issues, and Peter needs to address some of those. And notice that he says, how to submit? He says, in the same way. Well, of course, the question is, in the same way as what? Certainly, we're in the context of talking about slaves, and we're talking about citizens, but I think the more immediate context, where Pastor Larry finished up last week, was at the end of chapter 2, when he gave Jesus' example of submission to the Father, even unto the point of death. And you think about Jesus and his relationship with his Father— is Jesus and God are equal, right? There's different roles. God is the Father, Jesus is the Son, but they're both God. Neither one is more God-like than the other one. But in their role of ministry, Jesus willingly submits himself under the leadership of the Father. And Jesus also submitted himself to Mary and Joseph. Think about it as, as a boy. I mean, can you imagine being God and submitting yourself to your creation? especially as he grew up and, and quickly advanced them in what he knew of scripture and, and reality. Even though Jesus knew more, he submitted to them. And wives, aren't there times when you feel like you know more than your husband? Or times when you maybe definitely do know more than your husband's? This isn't an issue of who's smarter, who's stronger, who's smarter, who's better. You see, submission does not speak to value. It does not speak to the value of a soul. It's actually a military term. This word submission came from a military term. I was just talking to uh, one of my buddies. He just uh, one of my basketball players. He just had a pretty tearful goodbye with him, and now he's going into the Coast Guard. Just started boot camp this last week, and he was kind of explaining to me how the Coast Guard works. And just like any any uh, form of military, there's these complex rankings. Uh, he's coming in as E1, a seaman recruit, and he's going to slowly make his way up some of that, at least some of that ladder. And you see, in, in the military rankings. Now these rankings, they don't speak to value. All that's a difference up there is it's a difference of authority. The, the admiral is not more valuable or necessarily smarter or better than the vice admiral, than the captain or the commander. But here's the reality. If you go into war, if there's no chain of command, there's going to be chaos on the battlefield. Imagine going to war without a general, someone calling the shots. God is a God of order, and he says to avoid chaos, established order. And so a wife ultimately is, oh, sorry for the, the fadedness, a wife ultimately shows submission not to her husband, but to God by respecting her husband's leadership. This started back in the Garden of Eden. This is where the problem began. Remember when God was doling out punishments? One of the things that he said to Eve, he said, then he said to the woman, you will bear children with intense pain and suffering. Sorry, ladies. 
And though your desire will be for your husband, he will be your master. This desire for your husband that he was referring to wasn't an ooh baby desire. It was to say that you're actually, there's going to be this power struggle. That you're going to have this desire to want to run the show, but, but it's the husband's role to be the leader. And couples have been fighting ever since. You see... Just like his, Jesus with his parents, a wife may experience this feeling that, that she knows more. And that it would be better if she would take the reins. Especially if there's a spiritual vacuum in the home. And you say, well, if the husband's not leading, then, then I need to step up and, and I need to do it. But when the wife seeks to be the leader, it makes it that much more difficult for the husband to serve in the role that God has called him to. And just as a, as a, a word of encouragement to, to our wives you have to let your husband know what you need. It's not a wagging of the finger. It's, it's not pointing out all of the inadequacies, how he doesn't measure up. It's affirming him. It's encouraging him. Letting him know that God has given, God has given him everything that he needs, all of the tools to be a godly leader. And not that he's blowing it, but what you need and, and what the children need. Next point, be a godly influence to lead an unbelieving spouse to Christ. It says, in the same way, wives, be submissive to your husbands. Why? So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, perhaps you are in this situation or someone you know and care about is in this situation where your, your husband specifically or your spouse is, is not a believer, is not walking with the Lord and there's nothing that you want more than them to know their Savior, for them to come to salvation. There's nothing that you need more than a godly leader in your life. So how do we say them? Well, it's easy to feel, man, if I could just convince him, right? If I could just talk him into it, if I could just argue him into it, maybe, you know, try to cry him into it, right? Lay on the, the, game, the, the, the shame and the guilt, or maybe I'll, you know, slide a gospel track in this bologna sandwich that I'm making him for work this day. Like, maybe that'll get him, right? But what Peter says is, no. No, it's, it's by your conduct. He says, the best form of evangelism that you could ever have for your husband is living a life of purity and reverence before him. You see, actions, Peter's, Peter's, look, speak louder than words, that they will see our good deeds and glory God. And it, this, but this creates a challenge, does it not? When you have spouses that are in two different places, this can, this can create confusion for the, the kids in the home, create havoc, definitely an obstacle to intimacy. But our job is never to save someone. That is not our responsibility. Our job is to trust the one who does save. To trust our Savior to what he's called us to. You can only control what you can control. And he says what you can control is the way that you live, the example that you live before your spouse. I'm going to say a few words here to the, to the singles, those of us in the house. Um, Paul says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he says to not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. He says just like darkness and light have nothing in common with each other, a believer and an unbeliever don't have anything in common either. And so for singles to look for a spouse who will love God more than they love you. Now that sounds counterintuitive, 
wants to be my everything, the apple of my eye. And yes, that's true, but, but you need to find someone who loves God more than you and never waver on that standard. Never waver on that standard, and especially for ladies that, to not give anyone other than your husband. Let that husband be anyone other than than they love you. You're too beautiful. You're too valuable to God. Do not sell yourself short. That's what I tell myself every night before I go to bed. <laughs> Secondly, second point, real beauty. It says don't neglect the spiritual for the physical. Don't neglect the spiritual for the physical. Your beauty should not come, Peter said, from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Now for some of you, this might not be a fashion statement that you're going to be tempted to stumble in, and that's fine. But in the Greek culture, these women, they would wear these huge towers of, of braided hair woven with these like gold threads and pearls in them. It's like this massive gaudy beehive. I think it basically looked like this. <laughs> Easy to get things lost over there. Um, and at the time, there was, so there was no middle class. And so what you had was you had a few people who were really, really rich and a lot of people who were really, really poor. And so what would happen is the people with much would parade what they had in front of those who had little. And in the Greek world, it was all about physical form, all about outward appearance. That's where we get the expression, he has the body of a Greek god, right? Someone who looks like this, right? And that, and that for men, there was this intense muscle training, this intense focus on that. For women, there was this intense focus on hair and makeup and jewelry. And I really think I'm living in the wrong era, personally. I think the, what do you think? That's spooky, isn't it? Twins. Um... And, and for each of us, this, this is, our, ha, uh, often we focus on our physical appearance to the our spiritual um, health. And it's different for all of us, uh, but, but for all of us, in, in whichever way that we, we come about that, it, we idolatry. It's all about me, and, and it's unhealthy. And, you know, our, we live in a culture that says lift this, reduce that. Um, and, and what we're really saying is that we're not happy with the way that God formed us. The clay is telling the potter, not impressed. In 1 Timothy 4, P P Paul does acknowledge, he says, physical training, exercise is of some value. I mean, certainly we want to be healthy, and we want but all things in moderation. And the question is, what do you most value? And what Peter says that God most values is not this outward appearance, but he says instead it should be that of your inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth to God. And, and what he's saying here is, he's saying what God values is what is inside of us, our character, our gentle and quiet spirit. Now that doesn't mean you're mouse-like and you're fragile. What it means is that we're not loud-mouthed and self-centered. That it's all about us and God, that the attention goes there, not here. And what matters more to you? How people in your life see you or what God thinks about when he looks at you? He says this is the kind of spirit that is attractive to him. And also think about the way that we look at other people. We often tend to objectify people based on their outward appearance, make judgments on them, um, value judgments based on how they look. If I was to show you these two guys on the screen, as you look at these guys, what, what assumptions do you make about them? 
just on the surface, what, what, what kind of lifestyle do they live, what kind of financial status, if you're walking by either one of them on the street, which one causes you to put your hand over your wallet? We make assumptions people are and make value statements on them in our minds and our actions based on their outward appearance. And we need to come to the place where we value in people that God values. And love's not based on the other person anyway. We love because God is love and he is in us. Next, we see that Christian character is more valuable than physical beauty. He says, this gentle and quiet spirit, this is what is of great worth in God's sight. What is the most stereotypical toy that you can think of for a girl? Which one? What was it? Yes, specifically, Barbie doll, right? You guys got it, the Barbie doll. Now, here's the interesting thing about Barbie. This is, if you want to have some fun, go on to Google and look up what happens if Barbie was real life. Like, what happens if Barbie's doll proportions were real human proportions? There's a couple different things that I saw, but one of them said that Barbie, if she was a real person, she was of normal proportions, she would be seven foot four, <laughs> she would have a 12-inch waist, she would be, suffice to say, buxomly. Um, and she would probably not be able to have a digestive system because of how small her stomach was. So this is, this is Barbie. If Barbie was real, she couldn't stand up on her own. That no human, no human spine could support Barbie's structure. And, and, and so this is, she's not realistic. This can't actually happen. And yet what is implied is this is exactly what little girls need to look like. Be a Barbie doll. And what God says is that's not what makes you beautiful. That's not what gives you value. We want to ask ourselves these questions. In, in regard to modesty, are we seeking to draw attention to ourselves or to the Lord? Whether or not you're modest doesn't mean exactly how high your skirt comes up, exactly how tight your clothes are, exactly how much time you spend in front of but with your outward appearance and your inward appearance, are you attempting to draw attention to yourself or draw attention to the Lord? When it comes to our message, what kind of statement are we making by the way that we dress, by the way that we live? Are, everyone's making a statement. You could say, I don't make a statement with the way I dress. Well, that's making a statement, right? We're all, we all have a message. The question is, what is your message? And finally, money and time. How are we using our money and time to advance the kingdom of God? Today, in our world, cosmetics is an $8 billion industry. $8 billion. And that doesn't even include perfume and, perfume and cologne or $12 billion industry. And imagine what that money, what that time and focus could do for bigger and better battles, for fighting hunger and disease and advancing the gospel. Now, this isn't an indictment to go home and flush all of your mascara down the toilet, okay? Especially you, Jim. It's, you can, all things in moderation, okay? You got that? All right, he's good. <laughs> but what we're saying here is that often the pendulum flies too far in the opposite direction. And we need to think that through. We're taking it before the Lord. Then he says, he says, let's look at the example of Sarah and the Old Testament godly women. For this is the way that the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. 
You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Sarah trusted Abraham. She even followed his harebrained ideas, like when he said, this king is going to kill me because he wants you, so let's pretend that I'm not your husband. Let's say that I'm your brother, right? And so then what happened? They said that, and the king takes Sarah, and he sleeps with her. Now, you know, we don't have the time to get into, you know, the rights and wrongs of that whole thing, and, but the point is that the reason that Sarah could follow Abraham was not because she put her hope in Abraham's brain. Not that she put her hope in Abraham's ability to lead. She ultimately, it says in verse 5, put their hope in God. And at the end, it says, they did not give way to fear. It's a scary thing to submit to earthly leadership. Like we said, it's scary to submit to our government especially when we don't agree with them. It's a scary thing for a woman to herself whole until death do them part to a man. Out of all the species in the world, a man, really? And, and you think even, you know, in the preaching, t- we were talking about this in our meeting this last week, Chris was talking about how much even more so for him to think about little Adeline as she grows up and that one day he's going to give her over to another man. It's a terrifying thing. It's, an, it's a terrifying step of faith. But the, but the hope that we put is not in the human institution. It's the God who put them there. And the more that we trust in God, the easier it is to submit to earthly leadership. Now, one brief note. If you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship, you need to get out and you need to get help. You need to get out of there, and you need to get help. This is not your battle to fight on your own. Finally, the last point, responsibility. This is a word to the husbands. It goes both ways. It's much easier for a wife to submit to her husband if he is being a godly example, submitting to God himself. This isn't just the woman to put herself under her husband's leadership, his headship. This is also the way a husband treats his wives, his wife. Sorry, Larry. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. See, it says, um, be considerate as you live with your wives. Another way to say this is to dwell with your wife in understanding, with knowledge. To dwell. I was thinking when I was, um, I was dating a girl in college, long-term relationship, and I remember It was always interesting, when it would get to be, like, lunchtime, especially if it was a late lunch, like if we were going to church together, and, um, you know, usually the sermon goes long always, and um, you don't get to eat until 1, 1 1.30 sometimes, and she would start to get, like, really cranky, and sort of have this bad attitude, and I'm thinking, like, you know, you need to, you need to repent of this, like, you need to, you need to be a better Christian, right? And she's like, no, I'm just hungry. And I thought, no way is this just about food. Like, this is a bigger, this is a spiritual battle in your life, and we need to get to the bottom of this. Well, it, you know, but then we'd go, and she'd eat, and she'd be fine, and it turned out she was, she was hypoglycemic, and she needed, she had protein deficiency, and she just needed to eat. It wasn't an issue of being saved. She just needed a Big Mac, right? And, and so, 
but I had to learn what it meant to, to understand who she was and to, to understand her needs, to know her. If I don't know, if I don't take the time to get my eyes off myself and know who she is, I can't come alongside her and love her. And in the same way, you might say, dwell with your wife in understanding. Understanding? I don't understand her. Like, everything she does is different than what I would do. And every way that she thinks is different than, than how I would think. But here's the beautiful thing. God takes women who are amazing, and he takes men who are sometimes above average. <laughs> People who see the world completely different, and the two become one. And they have one heart. And what that requires is a death to self and to live for the other. This is something that we can't our own strength. This implies empathy, that I feel what you're feeling. And I, I'm not sure why you're crying, and I don't know what I did wrong, or what it was that I did or what I said, but I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to put myself in your shoes and love you. Next point is to honor your wife. Peter says that we are considerate and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Oftentimes this is translated, probably a better translation, as the weaker vessel. Now oftentimes I believe this gets that we say, oh, this means that the woman is usually weaker physically, and so we need to protect them. Well, I don't think that's always the case. I think Ronna Martin's a great case study of that the woman is not always the weaker. I think she could take Blair, right? <laughs> Uh, you did once. Okay, let's, we'll talk to Larry about that later. Um, it's not that they're physically weaker, and I don't, it's certainly, it's not that they're mentally or emotionally weaker. Again, this is not a value judgment. He says, as you would treat a weaker vessel or a weaker piece of pottery. So how would you treat that? And I love what this pastor, uh, Eric, I can't pronounce his last name, what he had to say about this. So we tend to think of weakness in terms of inferiority. But in pottery, which is the context, the finer a vessel is, the more valuable it is. Anyone can make a bulky piece of stoneware for everyday use, but a piece of fine china, a Grecian urn, a Ming vase, a Tiffany lamp, a Waterford crystal, that's the work of a master. You handle that with respect and care. You put it in a special place where people can admire it. You make sure nobody does anything to break it. In a word, you honor it. Its weakness doesn't mean it's more dependent. It means it's more valuable. The point of the verse is not remember that your wife is weak like a piece of china. It's treat your wife with honor just as you would treat the fine work of a master craftsman. Husbands, your wives are the work of a master craftsman. And you are to value them as such. Are you treating your wife with that kind of value, that kind of admiration that you just, you can't believe? And I hear husbands, I, I've, I've, I have some amazing friends of mine who are amazing husbands, probably not all the time, but they can't believe how amazing their wife is, that you value them, that you protect them. Because here's the deal, how you treat your wife is how one day your son is going to treat his wife, and how your daughter is going to expect to be treated by her husband. Your family is watching you. 
You set the tone. And it's your job to be the spiritual leader of the house. That's what God's created you for, and that is what he's given for you to be. To live primarily not for yourself, but for your wife and for your children. There's a Swedish study that was recently done that showed, and again, don't put too much st- uh, stock into statistics, but said that when, when a wife, when only the wife in a home is a believer, that only 4% of the time, on a global scale, 4% of the time, the children become believers. 4% of the time, only the wife is a believer. The husband believers, 30% of the time, the children also come to know the Lord. The interesting thing was, when only the husband is a believer, the children become believers 42% of the time. So the numbers actually go up. And again, let's not put too much in those numbers. You can make statistics, say anything you want. But the point is this. Husbands, the kind of example that you're living, not the words that you say, but the way that we live matters. And it affects not just your wife, but generations to come. The next point is to treat your wife like a partner. It says, consider, be considerate, treat them with respect, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Remember, in Christ there is no male or female, and yes, there are different roles in the home, in the home. That men don't call all the shots. You are partners. It's a conversation. It's a dialogue. It must be a two-way street. It's not heavy-handed. This is the way it's going to be. You talk to each other as equals. What, what do you think's been going well? What needs to change? And this communication must happen as joint heirs with Christ. And finally, hindered prayers. He says the reason that we're considerate and we treat them with respect and as heirs so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is an interesting connection that Peter makes to wrap up this chapter. And again, I think someone else said it better than I could. Uh, Pastor John Henderson, he said it this way, just in case a husband might be tempted to view and treat his wife as less important than himself, Peter commands the husbands to show honor. God takes this so seriously that he will refuse the prayers of any man who deals dishonorably with his wife. In a way, God is telling his husbands this, If you will not show honor, your wife honor, neither will I show you honor. If you will not live in under, if you will not live with her in an understanding way, neither will I live with you in an understanding way. If you will not hear her petitions, neither will I hear your petitions. Remember he said, Jesus said in Matthew, if you don't forgive, I will not forgive. And he wraps it up, he says this, I receive you in the same way you receive my daughter. God says this, I created her. I value her more than any gold or silver in all of the universe. And I wanted so desperately to have a relationship with her that I sent my only child to this earth in her place so that she could be my daughter and I could be her father and live with her forever. The way that I value her is the way, men, that you are to value my daughter. And if you do not value her, if you do not protect her, if you do not hold her up and and, and know her and treat her the way that I would treat her, I will not listen to you. I will not walk with you. And he's not, this is not the context of losing your salvation. But I will not walk with you. I will not hear your prayers if you're not treating my daughter the way that I would treat her. 
no matter what, no matter how we splice this up, there is no easy one, two, three. Marriage is long, it's hard, and it's messy, but it's also beautiful, and it's a picture and a gift from God of his relationship with his son. And for a marriage to be thriving and overflowing with joy only happens when both spouses are willing to die to themselves and live for the other. But this is not something that we can just make happen by gritting our teeth. It's supernatural. It's supernatural. And that's why I want to end in a time of prayer. I want us to pray specifically for the married couples in our church and those that you know, friends and family. And I want us to pray specifically for spouses who may not know the Lord, that they would come to know them as their Savior, that they would their hope, all of their questions to be, find their answer in the only one who is worthy. And that the believing spouses in those relationships would apply these principles of 1 Peter 3, even when it's difficult. This is much easier to say than it is to do, to live a life of purity and reverence in front of them. And for marriages that they would thrive, and for families and little children that are watching their parents, who are desiring marriage or who are, who are interacting with those concepts of teenagers and children in our church who are men, it's pretty clear what, what Peter says here. If, if you're not treating your wife with respect, God's not going to hear your prayers this morning. And perhaps what first needs to happen is repentance and to confess to him the way that you've been treating them. And maybe you need to pull her outside right now and talk to her. Or maybe, no, pull her. <laughs> Take her, lead her, by the small of the back. Um, or maybe it's after the service, so there needs to have a conversation. These things need to get right today. Don't put it off until tomorrow. So what I want to do, and you can pray just before you and God, if you want to turn to a, a neighbor or a couple neighbors, and just spend a couple, time, a couple minutes in prayer for these marriages. Uh, when that time's over, the, the, the ladies will come back up on in worship. So go ahead and let's take a few minutes in prayer.